Welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about modern Chinese history showing how China came to be the way that it is today through the lens of Chinese revolutionary movements starting from about 1839 and the First Opium War. I am your host, Nathan Bennett. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is kind of a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. Uh, The usual round of beginning announcements. I am looking to try to get to about 100 paid subscribers so that I can start focusing on supplementary episodes, biographies of key people, technology, zooming in on special interest items. You can join the Substack for greater connection with the podcast. You'll get behind-the-scenes stories, stories from my time in China, um, uh, all and a way you can support the podcast for free. Always, please rate and review me on all platforms. Share me in your social media. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast, buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast. The substack is at chineserevolutions.substack.com, or um, please send me an email, chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Thoughts, ideas, suggestions, shameless flattery. Uh, Okay, here we go. Uh, Today we are talking about Protestant missionaries. Uh, and their role in the lead-up to the Taiping Rebellion. When we... Okay, we're going to cover the Opium War very, very soon. That's really going to be quite short. It's really not going to be the main point. It's it's the... You know, like, when you turn the corner, like, at which point do you really turn the corner? It's it's not really about the, you know, hard turn, whoa, we almost fell out of the car turn. It's... um. But we have to tell it. But I have to tell you that that happened, and some of the details about that. Um, this episode, it's it, this is one of the critic. This is about one of the critical things in play before and during the Taiping Rebellion. Uh, this is Protestant missionaries, especially Protestant missionaries. They are one of the key points of contact between Europe and the Taiping uh, rulers. They are one factor for, and then later very, very, very against the Taipings in European eyes. So it it starts promising, and then they find out a little more about the details about the Taiping movement, and, hmm, my goodness. Uh, And then also Protestant missionaries are where the Taipings are going to be getting a lot of their initial materials. So it's really important um, to see you know, what the Taipings are borrowing from and how they really, really make it their own. Uh, but first, let's look at the original so that when we look at the the Chinese movement taking it and running with it, uh, what they do is going to be clear. This is going to be one of two episodes. In these episodes, we're going to do the following. We're going to go over some extreme basics about Christianity, and no, it's not like people just really know about it anymore. Um, uh, we're going to go over some Protestant history, partly because of the kinds of missionaries who are turning up in China is going to be very important. The history of Protestant missions in China, up to the relevant point, that's going to be more next week, you know, so having finished the episode outline, and, um, I know this now, um, uh, so I can tell you about 
what was tried before and what was getting into China and what Hong Xiuquan was picking up as the founding revelations for the Taiping movement were being had. Um, and we'll be doing a lot with missionaries working in China. They are an integral part of Chinese revolutions, but we're not there yet. So let's look at some basics about Christianity. Okay, um, we, I'm taking this kind of from an outside perspective. Um, so whatever I myself believe, we're looking at, okay, what Christianity is. It's a universal religion. It's taken root in many places at many times. It makes universal claims, covering every person, every nation, every society, every family. It's for anyone. It's for everyone. It's for all the people, all of them, high, low, middle, all of them. Okay. This is part of why the missionaries go out in the first place. Um, it's not just something they can keep to themselves. Not just Christianity does this. You know, you see Islamic missionaries, you see um, Buddhist work sometimes. Like, like there's a critical part during the Tang Dynasty where Buddhism went to China, where it went to uh, Southeast Asia, it went to Japan. Um, I'm not... But okay, but but Christianity, with its universal claims, it it is seeking to to you know, share the message with the whole world. It can become a shared connection point between foreign cultures. This is particularly important because the Taiping are going to try to claim to believe the same thing that Protestant missionaries believe, um, and to try to get European support during the war. Um, it becomes a cultural bedrock of societies in which it becomes the majority religion, even if only nominally. And so in that, it it supplants original belief systems, like so Russia used to be pagan, but then the Eastern Orthodox Church was introduced, and now the Eastern Orthodox Church is one of the only pre-revolutionary uh, institutions that survived the Bolshevik Revolution and the extreme transformation of Russian society. Um, like, um, so it, the, and so you'll see this with how the Taiping deal with idols and temples and how they set up their uh, interesting cult uh, in the areas that they're running in China. Um, Christianity is a revealed religion. It's like this because God said it was, not because I figured it out. You know, you have somewhat, you have uh, something like the Bible that, even as a historical record of God's work with certain nations, the Jews in the Bible, um, God uses it as a revelation of His will. So, the story of what happened with some Jew three thousand years ago is a story that I need to look at for, you know, examples for my life. Um, the the founder of the, the Taiping movement actually edited the Bible um, to suit his doctrines, and he wrote extensive commentaries on it. So the, uh, like, so part of the Taiping thing was that uh, the, the Bible, yes, it was earlier religion, but there were problems with it, and so the revelations to 
the founder of the Taipings. Uh, his revelations were final, his revelations were accurate, and so he's just correcting the earlier revelation that has had problems with it. Things like heresy are very important because it's important to get the revelation right. And this transitions us to discussion of Protestantism, which was a movement against where they thought that the Roman Catholic Church had gotten it wrong. So Christianity as a thing. Uh, go back to the very beginning. Christ founded Christianity, handed it on to the apostles who trained successors, who trained successors. Uh, the uh, in the West, you had the Roman Catholic Church. In the East, you had the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Armenian, Egyptian, Arab, and Indian, Malankara, Oriental Orthodox. Um, I, I name all those because the Oriental Orthodox spectrum is, is kind of interesting. Anyway, um, you have other groups as well. Um, all in common, uh, they have a formal liturgy, a formal worship service, lots of ceremony. They, they have a blend of there, there's a blend of a highly literate core with a supporting oral culture. Uh, so, you know, writing was has has been around for years and years and years and years, for millennia. Okay, so you you'll have a literate class in the clergy, but then you you have ways for that to then have a complementary oral culture. So, uh, actually, many of the places where you find that Christianity survived the coming of Islam, there was a Bible translation in the local language. Like, so the survival of the Egyptian church, well, they have the Bible in the Coptic Egyptian language, that they have something, they, they do have it in Arabic now, of course, but they have something other than just the other thing um like so the the survival of the georgian church the uh, the armenian church okay they they had it in their languages and so there there was a literate educated intelligentsia that was able to continue to pass on the training the the cultural core um Okay, but then there is a supporting oral culture, um, which, okay, when you get to the Protestant Reformation, there's a radical shift. Um, there's a pivotal technological advance, the printing press for European languages, especially, you know, Roman alphabets. Um, the books and pamphlets became much cheaper. Books and pamphlets became the way to share the message. It's much easier to base your thing explicitly on a revealed text. So where something like Sola Scriptura, you know, the the primacy of Scripture as the Protestants do it, it became much, much more possible because the Bible was much, much cheaper to to share. So where maybe before a handwritten copy of the Bible would cost like what a house would cost. Now it costs what a car might cost. So still expensive, but much more accessible to, you know, like merchant classes, people who are nevertheless influential, but before they couldn't own their own Bible. Okay, so... 
the the founder of the Taiping movement is going to take the revealed text thing and run with it. China did have a literate upper class, uh, and they had well-developed literary culture, but as far as I can tell, they didn't have adherence to a uni universal religion as a Chinese thing, like a you know, like you know, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and let's say um, Mali. Um, they they have Islam in common, kind of. I mean, maybe maybe even better would be Islamic India than Persian Iran and Arabic, um, well, Arab Saudi Arabia. It's there in the name, anyway. Um, the, 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 these are different cultures, different peoples, but they have, um, even where they diverge between Sunni and Shiite, um, they share pilgrimage to Mecca, they share, um, the, they share the prophet Muhammad, they share the text of the Quran, um, they, they have reasons for you know, even fighting wars with each other if they so desire, um, that they they share a universal religion. Um, we don't see that so much, as far as I know, with China. Um, though Buddhism may be shared between, you know, China, Korea, Japan, Southeast Asia, it... it, it um, that's a that's a different question I'd have to come back to. Um, it's a it's a normal thing to write and print evangelistic pamphlets and tracts um, as the main way of sharing the message for Protestant Christianity, especially because of the the uh, literary dynamite right there at the start. Um, Martin Luther with his pamphleteering, uh, John Calvin, the other reformers. Um, it's not just something to be read to a gathered assembly like the letters of St. Paul in the New Testament, but that it is the main form that it's shared. They, there's a bunch of pamphlets, share them around. So you don't have just one person reading them to a bunch of other people. You, you, people are just reading it and passing it on. Pamphlets written by Chinese converts are going to be key to the development of the Taiping Rebellion. Let's look at a little European history. Okay, before the Roman Catholic Church was a core civilizational organizing point for European culture. So between nations, um, the bishop of this and the bishop of that and the pope in Rome, that was a shared authority that even if they disagreed with it or trying to move around it, it, it was a thing. It was international um, covering Europe anyway. Um, all of society nominally shared this faith. Um, and then, as you may very well remember from high school, uh, Roman Catholic Church problems with corruption, indulgences, problems not solved by the Roman Catholic hierarchy before the Reformation took root and got beyond their reach. Lots of problems not solved, and so the Reformers decided to do something else. So there are two streams here. The one is the magisterial reformation. There's a lot of formal hierarchy somehow retained, a lot of explicit uh, adherence to tradition, a lot of explicit uh, borrowing from church fathers, from church tradition, 
but with, you know, but make no mistake, this is revolutionary in the fullest sense, changing the rules by, uh, by which things are done, changing the understanding behind everything. Um, but there's, there's kind of two reformational streams that I'll be talking about here. Northern Germany, Scandinavia, um, kind of followed the Lutheran strain. Um, parts of Switzerland, Netherlands, Scotland became what is called reformed. Um, the Church of England is actually kind of weird in its historical development. A lot of politics, a lot of inclusion of freedom of conscience, you know, as long as you acknowledge the English monarch as the governor of the church. Uh, did interesting things to it. Um, some of that is my personal opinion. Um, somebody who's actually Anglican might tell you something differently than I do. But anyway, okay, then the next bit that really is going to drive a lot of what we're going to be seeing in the Chinese history is the Radical Reformation. So they, you'll have guys who come along later and even right at the time of the Magisterial Reformation uh, they say that the those that you know Luther and Calvin didn't go far enough. Their more extreme, more explicit condemnation of the Roman Catholic Church, um, their their claims reaching much more to the root of the faith, even more insistence on personal conversion, conscious personal accept. Excuse me, conscious personal acceptance of the faith. Um, many magisterial Reformation branches still baptize infants, whereas the Radical Reformation insists on believer baptism with conscious profession of an accepted faith. Um, like, so, you know, you'll have um, Anglicans, Lutherans, um, you know, Catholics, Orthodox, who are baptized in, as infants, don't live remotely religious lives, but they're they're baptized, they're they're in. Whereas the radical reformers will condemn this practice, no matter what reasons the um, other you know groups will give for it, they insist upon conscious believer baptism. There was a much more explicit break with formal hierarchies and authorities. And this is going to be important when we look at some of the preachers, some of the missionaries who come over to support the Taiping. You know, so why is this guy from Tennessee or Kentucky or wherever this one guy I'm thinking of is from, what's he doing over there? Why, why can he come? Well, partly it's because of the inheritance from the Radical Reformation that you break away from, you know, when, when you break apart from a central authority, it becomes a lot harder to keep keep it together about why this guy's legit and this guy's not. Um, okay, so let's, moving along to England, and England is a key place where Protestantism divided quite a lot. Um, England it being so key to a lot of what we're talking about is uh, part of why we're going to focus on it right now. Okay, let's look at, okay, so we kind of looked at the Reformation going about 1500, uh, Gutenberg and his printing press was getting going, um, Martin Luther was nailing things to church doors, that's 1517, Okay, uh, the English Civil War is a nice 
place to zoom in a bit because that's uh, where things really, really get stirred up. You know, is the king trying to become Catholic again? Is he trying to, what's he trying to do? But then a lot of the Radical Reformation stuff was really getting going. And um, the English Civil War was 1642 to 1651. This is where England, um, this is after Elizabeth I uh, kind of settled a lot of the you know, like you could kind of believe whatever you want in the Christian spectrum, but as long as you acknowledge the English monarch as the head of the church in England, well, then the English Civil War, it becomes a lot more important about what you actually believe. Okay, then you move on to the 1700s, the uh, the Wesleys, um, they're... they're um, I can think of two. I know that I know there's at least two. One being Charles Wesley. Okay, in the Church of England, they 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 start Methodism. They're pushing more conversionism. They're borrowing a lot from um, the continent, uh, Protestant movements on the continent. Uh, the Baptists in England really took off. You know, versus Church of England. Um, being a communicating member, you know, somebody receiving communion in the Church of England was necessary for moving about in high society. Um, like, so if you ever go to a Protestant church and they're talking about um, what their you know, people in the history of their tradition were, they were dissenters. They were not C of E. They were not Church of England. Um, John Bunyan, the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, a classic of English literature, he was a radical Reformation guy. Um, so let's bring it over to America. We're just going to peg it at 1770, God, 1776, uh, when the American Revolution at least officially started. Well, when the uh, the Pilgrims came over, they were bringing a revolutionary radical Reformation thing trying to set up their own like religiously based uh, state. Um, but then you also have the official Church of England crossing the Atlantic, and that becomes the Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States um, as it is today. Um, uh, um, Radical Reformation Protestantism, uh, it crossed the Atlantic. Okay, again, the, the Puritans, who were the pilgrims landing at Plymouth Rock, they're looking for a kind of like a blank slate onto, on which to write. They're already very well-developed beliefs. Okay, and further new sects were founded in America. Um, like if you look at the story of the Mormons, that's like the story of the pilgrims just on the continent of North America. Um, the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the Shakers, the Seventh-day Adventists, the... God, all these, all these different things. American. All American. Very, very, very American. So, um, 
oh, Scottish Presbyterianism came over. Okay, and so the main the main point talking about America by eighteen hundred or so, you're going to have multiple kind of possibly valid churches. So in each ten years, you go into the future a whole additional level of westward expansion and further stirring of the pot back east. Okay, more tweaks to American Protestantism. Okay, and so. So then if in China you get random guys with a personal sense of calling to come over but very little formal institutional support, it goes with the territory. It goes with, you know, why Why is this guy coming over here saying he's a minister of God? God, it's just because he can. Um, it's it's uh, the, the the bar is low enough for him to get over. Okay, so for us, you know, what are what are we talking about here? What is going to be handed to the Chinese is going to come very strongly influenced by everything I just told you about. China will make its own choices about how it handles all this, but this gives you some better texture for understanding exactly who it is turning up on the shores of China with religious messages. It's not like like these people might be riding imperialistic gunboats and things um but that's not the point they they have a separate point okay these messengers they have a universal message um strong claims with personal meaning about what you ought to do about it they're coming with the idea that printing and sharing books and pamphlets is a good way to go about it um, their spiritual cause is so worth it to them that they have to just find the openings to make progress and get con and get conversions going, plant churches, see what happens next. They are carrying a message revolutionary in its magnitude, and it's entering the ferment that is China at this time. So if you don't understand who these people are, you're going to miss one of the key players with you know with a hand in how things are going you're you're going to miss a critical dimension to all of it um this episode is done in the spirit of being as sympathetic as possible i am not a protestant i find very much to criticize okay but i know from personal experience what motivates people like these missionaries and the quality of the people that they are, the sacrifices that they are willing to make, and even to suffer death if necessary, and not for the sake of destroying. Um, there's a, uh, I'm going to share something from G.K. Chesterton on humility and great pursuits. Okay, so these people are going to have a huge impact on China, whether or not it, it comes out you know, ruling on top. It's going to be very, very important. Okay, this is from his book Heretics, and it's about, um, you know, scientists like Darwin. Okay, so this is about humility and the practicality of humility. Men find it extremely difficult to believe that a man who is obviously uprooting mountains and dividing seas, tearing down temples and stretching out hands to the stars, is really a quiet old gentleman who only asks to be allowed to indulge his harmless old hobby and follow his harmless old nose. 
when a man splits a grain of sand and the universe is turned upside down in consequence, it is difficult to realize that to the man who did it, the splitting of the grain is the great affair, and the capsizing of the cosmos quite a small one. It is hard to enter into the feelings of a man who regards a new heaven and a new earth in the light of a by-product. But undoubtedly it was to this almost eerie innocence of the intellect that the great men of the great scientific period, which now appears to be closing, owed their enormous power and triumph. If they had brought the heavens down like a house of cards, their plea was not even that they had done it on principle, their quite unanswerable plea was that they had done it by accident. Whenever there was in them the least touch of pride in what they had done, there was a good ground for attacking them. But so long as they were wholly humble, they were wholly victorious. And so, for the missionaries we're talking about, where they were truly humble about what they did, they were going to get a lot done. Not necessarily even things they were intending to do, but they were going to have a huge impact. Um, splitting a grain of sand, changing a single soul. You know, uh, you know, you focus on the one thing and other things you can't control happen next. This is one of the things in play in Chinese revolutions. Next week we're going to talk more about Protestant missionaries actually going to China. So I'm going to close out for this episode. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash crpodcast, chineserevolutions.substack.com. Um, send me an email at chineserevolutions at gmail.com. Please rate, review, share. Thank you for listening, and again, I have been your host, Nathan Bennett. I will see you on the next episode.